First of all, disclaimer, if you're new to us this morning or joining us online for the first time, I promise you our abilities with video have gotten much better since three years ago, as has the acting. Tune in next week. Second, I want to begin with a thought experiment. If you had access to all the current technology, the Money's no object. You had access to every possible bit of technology you can imagine. What would be the most efficient way to get all the air out of this glass? Do not answer out loud. If you had access to all the technology available to us today, what would be the most efficient way to get rid of all the air in this glass? Hold on to that for a little bit. Some of you may know the answer. Many of you may not but we will uh, come to it a bit later. This morning, we continue in our series of based and launched out of Psalm 27, verse 4. It is a launching pad for us into other parts of Scripture. Our goal all along has been to take a look at, the, at this one verse from Psalm 27 and to look at the three main verbs that the psalmist uses to speak of the one thing he desires from God once more. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We have meditated a bit on what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord, on what it means to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and we have just begun to ponder what it means to seek him in his temple. And this morning, we're going to go to Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We just heard read before he officially began his ministry as we continue to ponder what it means to seek the Lord. Immediately following Jesus' baptism, again in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the word translated as tempted there, which could give us some problems if we're thinking about it, could just as easily have been translated as tested. N.T. Wright's translation, the Kingdom New Testament, and the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and probably some others, both of those use the word tested instead of tempted, and I really wish all of them would do that. It would make things a little easier. Because that's really the heart of it. The Holy Spirit didn't lead Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him to sin. That makes no sense. But to be tested for fitness for the mission for which God had sent him. Now, it wasn't a question of whether or not Jesus was fit for the mission, of course. It was, rather, that Jesus had to pass these tests on Israel's behalf. Jesus had to pass these tests on Israel's behalf. These three tests that Jesus faces are meant to recall for us the story of Israel in the wilderness. After they had been set free from slavery in Egypt and the Exodus, and they wandered in the wilderness. The three verses that Jesus quotes from in our passage today all come from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. And Deuteronomy is basically a book of speeches given by Moses at the end of Israel's wandering in the wilderness just before they're going to enter into the promised land. And how long did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. They wandered for 40 years Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. It's all meant to point us back to Israel. Jesus passes the tests that Israel failed. And that is in large part what this whole scene is all about. 
like the people of Israel, Jesus is in the wilderness and has been led there by God. When Israel was in the wilderness, they cried out for bread and they cried out for water and God provided manna from heaven and water from a rock. Unlike Israel's experience, however, God did not provide Jesus in, for, provide for Jesus in this way. His test, Jesus' test, in a sense, is even more challenging. God hasn't provided bread, but Satan has an idea. Verses 2 to 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you are the Son of God, Satan says, you don't need God. Do it yourself. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus passes the test by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And there, just as the people of Israel are about to leave the wilderness where they have failed God time and again and enter the promised land, there Moses warns them. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus proves this lesson is true by defeating the devil with Scripture, with God's own words. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth, by knowing and obeying the commandments of God. In the next test, The devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple, which would have been the highest point in the city, and he tells him to perform a miracle, only this time in public. No one would have known in the previous testing, no one would have known that Jesus turned stones into bread except for Jesus and the devil. But here, it's a very public scene. Here, everyone will see. Throw yourself down from the temple, and God will send his angels to rescue you before you hit the ground, Who will not want to follow you once everyone sees you do this? Once everyone sees the miraculous way that God has rescued you? Verse 7. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16 there, but he leaves off a phrase. Moses warns the Israelites not to follow the gods of the people around them and says this in verses 15 and 16 of Deuteronomy 6, For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. As you did at Massah. That's the part that Jesus doesn't quote. But everybody hearing this would have known that that was in there. Would have known that's actually what was said. They would have known immediately what this passage was about. We learn about Massah back in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 16, the people grumbled about being hungry in the wilderness, and God provided them manna and quail to eat. In Exodus 17, they are thirsty, and they complain again, Give us water to drink. Moses cried out to God. God 
told Moses to strike the rock and water would pour forth. Moses did so, and then we read in Exodus 17, verse 7. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Moses named or renamed that place where they were Massah and Meribah. Massah means tested, Meribah means quarreled. So back in Matthew 4, Jesus links the devil's second temptation to God's provision of water in the desert. And so, so far, both tests that Jesus has faced in the wilderness intentionally mirror Israel's failure in the wilderness and God's provision, either in the test itself or in the way that Jesus responded to it. And we dare not miss this question. Is the Lord among us or not, they ask. Is the Lord among us or not? Because now, back in Matthew 4, as Jesus is in the wilderness, as Jesus passes the same kinds of tests, his temptation, the thing the devil wants him to do, is to ask the question, the same question, is God here with me or not? Will God provide for me or not? Can I trust God or not? The tempter wants Jesus to question the very presence of God and whether or not God can be trusted. And that temptation is not all that different from the temptation we first encounter in the pages of Scripture with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They too are tempted not to trust that God will provide for them, that God has their best interest, and they listen to the serpent instead. But again, Jesus passes this test on behalf of Israel. Finally, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan promises to give all these to Jesus if he will only bow down and worship him. Now, set aside for a moment whether Satan owns all these things or not. After all, he is a liar, and he sits on a throne of lies. Matthew 4.10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. It's not an exact quote, but the idea is the same. The devil is tempting Jesus to worship him and to serve him as Israel was tempted to do something similar when they fashioned a golden calf, turned it into an idol, and sacrificed to it and worshipped it. Once again, the test Jesus passes mirrors the test Israel faced in the wilderness. Where they failed, he passes it. When Jesus responds to this last temptation, we can kind of tell he's had it. It's almost like he breaks the fourth wall. I mean, that's the way I pictured it. I, I was involved in this prayer exercise a few weeks ago where I had to interact with this, and I just saw this thing very differently than I'd seen in the past. I, I saw Jesus going through this. I saw Jesus is all prayed up in this, in this scene. He's been praying and fasting for 40 days. And I picture him almost breaking the fourth wall, like when an actor in a film or a television show breaks the fourth wall. They turn and they look at the camera and they may say something to you. They acknowledge that you're there. They know this is, you know, is on view for everyone. Jesus, as I said, praying and fasting. He's on his game. He's been dispatching the devil's temptations left and right, and now he's done. And to me, it's almost as if he looks into the camera 
winks, turns back to the devil and said, is that the best you can do? Get lost. And then we get back to the reason we're in this passage. We need to ask the question as to what all of this has to teach us about what it means to seek God in his temple. As Psalm 27, 4 puts it, how does Jesus testing in the wilderness speak to us about seeking God? Well, first, it shows us that to seek God is to obey God. To seek God is to obey God. It it is to turn from sin and the temptation to sin and to turn toward God. But it is also to trust that Jesus has already done all of this for us, too. We We can repent from sin and receive forgiveness because Jesus has been crucified and has risen again. It's a done deal. There's nothing you and I can do to add to what Jesus has already accomplished. We see this call to turn from sin even more clearly in what happens next in chapter 4. Immediately following Jesus' uh, testing in the wilderness, he withdraws to the region of Galilee. He moves to Capernaum. And so for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus takes initiative. Up until this point, Jesus has almost been in the background. While Joseph and Mary and John the Baptist and even the Holy Spirit seem to take center stage. But now Jesus sets up mission control in Capernaum. That's going to be his home base. He takes center stage and then we read in verse 17 of chapter 4. We didn't hear this before. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This this message, repent, uh, that we hear, uh, we don't need to hear it in the way we might hear it when we see these guys. I'm not, I'm pretty sure that most of us at some point, for me it was in college usually, but have been exposed to street preachers screaming at people passing by, fire and brimstone. But when we take a moment, to under, a moment to understand the meaning of the word repent, all of that will hopefully fade into the background. The Greek word is metanaeo, to change one's mind or to reconsider afterwards. See, we often hear the word repent and we think, stop sinning, you're going to hell. But really, it's about being presented with new information that causes you to reconsider, that causes you to change your mind about something. In this case, the new information, it is hoped, will cause you to reconsider how you're living your life, to change your mind, and to live differently. But I want us to notice the motivating factor here. Jesus says we are to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the word translated as come near is a word that is very closely related to a Greek word that means to squeeze or to throttle. The kingdom of God is come near. It is at hand. It is at hand. It is right in front of you in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Repentance is not first and foremost about looking back and seeing how badly we've lived our lives. No, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our shame. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our shame. It's about looking forward to what and who we can become and where God is taking all things. 
It's good news, and we are invited to be a part of it. It's right here. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are not merely turning away from something bad. We are turning toward something much, much better. Think of that when you hear the word repent. To seek God is to repent. But to repent is to move toward the kingdom of God and all that it offers us. It is, in his call to repent, Jesus, I think, knows and, and demonstrates a spiritual principle. What early 19th century Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers referred to as the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers was very influential uh, in his time. It was estimated that as many as half the population of Edinburgh attended his funeral when he died in 1847. The title of this morning's message is taken from a lecture by Chalmers. And in that lecture, he pondered the meaning of the passage from 1 John 2.15 in which we read this very simple statement. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Now, I think it, it may sound strange to be told not to love the world or anything in the world, but what John is, means is that we should not love worldly things. We should not love worldly things. We should, we should love only God. However, if we do love worldly things, we cannot simply remove that love from our hearts and lives with a vacuum pump. That won't work. We must replace it with something else. Or consider this strange parable Jesus teaches in Matthew 12. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Seven other spirits more wicked than the first can occupy a person because nothing else has been put there in its place. And nature abhors a vacuum. So do wicked spirits, apparently. So earlier, I asked you to consider the most effective way to remove all the air from this glass. Just for fun. Other than Sam, who already know knows the answer. Because I tested him. How do you remove all the air from this glass? You want to shout it out? Fill it with water. Very good. Now let's do this. And I'm going to do it for you. Fill it with water. You remove all the air from the glass. You expel all the air from the glass. It's the quickest, it's the easiest, it's the most efficient, and the cheapest way to do it. We empty it of air by filling it with something new, a new affection. We empty our lives of sinfulness and wickedness by filling it, filling our lives with something else, something new, something better, the expulsive power of a new affection. Again, in Matthew 13, Jesus says this, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a tre- like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. In his joy, the expulsive power of a new affection for the treasure. In his joy, he sells everything so he can buy that field and get that treasure. Whatever else was occupying his life before he found the treasure, has been expelled by the joy of finding the treasure and the pursuit of purchasing that field. There may be some of you here in the room or joining us online for whom the glass is empty. You've never experienced or entered into the kingdom of God. The good news is you do not have to empty that glass of all that is wrong, of all that is wicked, of all that isn't as it should be. You simply need to take the first step of responding to Jesus, of welcoming him him into your life, filling the glass with the living water of a new affection, an affection for Jesus. It's not going to happen all at once, but over time, the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of it all will simply drive out Everything that is less than this new affection, if we give ourselves to it, if we make it our life's goal. Or maybe once upon a time that glass was full or nearly full for you. You were full of energy, you were full of joy and enthusiasm at the presence of Jesus in your life. The the kingdom of God was working itself out in you and through you. But now over time you've been worn down. You have sinned and you have been sinned against. You've been wounded. You've become complacent or bitter or apathetic about the things of God. Your glass is half empty. You too can seek God once again and experience the expulsive power of a new affection. The first step is the same. Respond to Jesus again. Recommit your heart and your life to him Ask not only for forgiveness, but ask for joy. Ask God that you would be able to sense and know and experience the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit to fill you, to lead you, and to empower you to live more fully into the kingdom of God. Ask, pray, and then I encourage you to ask someone else to help you, to pray with you. Tell them what you desire. This, of course, is a lifelong process. It is a journey. And as we continue to submit ourselves to the kingdom, to changing our minds, to reconsidering as we learn more and more of who God is, turning toward God over and over again, seeking God, we will be transformed. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. Sin will become less and less of who we are, less and less of our identity. It will be driven out. It will be expelled by the kingdom of God, by the mercy of God, by the love of God, by the grace of God that are all now at hand in the person of Jesus. The treasure in the field is ours if we want it. So wherever you are, in that journey, whether the glass is all the way empty or two-thirds empty or a third empty, wherever you are, do you want it?
Do you want the treasure in the field? Do you want to experience again the joy that has the power to expel everything else that would stand in the way? Would you join me in a moment of silence? Then I will close this in prayer. God, I pray, first of all, Lord, for those of us, which likely means um, the larger percentage of us if we are dealing with these sorts of things, who have at one time have known the fullness that you have promised us in Christ, that you have promised us in the gift of your Spirit. I pray for us, Lord, where we are, first of all, that we would see that there is more that you have for us, that there is always more. There is more you want to reveal to us, more you want to do in us, more you want us to experience of your kingdom of the presence of your spirit, of living in the presence of Christ. Lord, whoever that might be, here this morning, joining us online, watching this later, whoever that might be, God, would you give them the courage and the humility and the hunger and the faith to step out and begin the process of turning and seeking you once again. Of not merely leaving behind sin or apathy, or complacency, or bitterness, but embracing the healing and the wholeness that you have in your kingdom. And I pray for those, God, who might be present today in some way, who have never yet found a way to enter the kingdom, for whom the glass is completely empty. I ask, God, that you would give them the grace and the humility to turn and simply to cry out to you that you would save them. I ask that you give them the humility and the courage to tell someone, to ask one of us on staff or someone they know who already knows you to pray with them. I ask, Lord, that you bring them into your kingdom and that you fill them with your joy, with your grace, with your love, with your mercy, and with your truth. I pray for all of us, God, that wherever we are, we would always turn and seek you, that we would always hunger for more of you, and that you would answer. We thank you, Lord, for the treasure in the field. We thank you that your desire is that we would have it. And I pray, Lord, that for each of us as individuals, for us as households, and for us as this congregation, that we would become a people characterized by the presence of Christ, by the work of the Spirit, and by the joy that you promise those who enter into your kingdom. In Jesus' name.